Welcome to the Doctrine Matters Podcast, where we seek to equip the church to understand and live out its faith. I'm your host, Stephen Dew. I'm the preaching pastor at South Caraway Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. We want to thank you for joining us today, and let's get right to today's episode. Well, hello, everybody. This is Pastor Stephen here with the Doctrine Matters Podcast, and with me today, I have two special guests, and uh, you may have heard them on a podcast recently. Uh, these two guys went to the G3 conference with myself, and uh, I have with me here Zach Davis and Travis Drum, both of which uh, you may have heard before, as I've said. And what we're going to do tonight is, on this episode at least, we're going to talk about God's decrees, God's sovereignty, and we're going to talk about God and salvation and what that looks like. Now, the conversation we're going to have basically boils down to this. Now, you may have heard uh, words thrown around like Calvinist or Calvinism and Arminianism and how those two um, interact, overlap, or if they're at odds completely with one another. We're going to get into that. We're going to look at really from the beginning of time, how does salvation work? What does it look like? Did God decree it? Did he uh, already have it in his plan of who would be saved, who would not be saved? It Was he going to elect some to heaven and elect some to hell? Is that how it works? Or did is he just going to pass over some? The big question is salvation. Is God sovereign in it or is he not? That's basically what we're going to get down to. And uh, we want to have a charitable discussion from both sides, kind of arguing both sides. Not really arguing. We don't want to argue with anybody. We want to be charitable. We want to talk out of love and out of respect and uh, really just have a good dialogue on this episode about salvation, where it began, how it's played out, and what that looks like. So uh, I'm just going to toss it over to my guys here with me today and uh, just get some opening thoughts about salvation and guys just talk to me a little bit about what's what the debates look like these days these are hot button issues these are hot topics are they not uh they sure are Stephen. and you know i think oftentimes it, it really goes back to god's sovereignty that's what uh for whatever reason people some people tend to have an issue with that well what is first of all let's let's talk about god's sovereignty what is that god's sovereignty is that he he is all-powerful over his creation. Uh, so two terms we kind of sometimes confuse or overlap are sovereignty and providence. So sovereignty is God's actual power over his creation. Uh, he is the creator, so all things are under his rule and authority. Now God's providence is the ways in which he works through his creation to work out uh, his eternal plans and decrees. Okay, so if we think about that um, in light of salvation, so he's got... He's planned it out, and then he's going to use whatever means necessary to make this come to fruition. Is that a good way to... I mean, he's actively ruling and reigning in this universe. So would you say that in salvation, it's already planned out from the beginning of time, or is that something that just kind of comes up as we go along in our everyday life? I, I do believe that it that is planned out um, from the foundations of the earth. I believe we see that in Scripture. Um Yeah, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Um, when we look at salvation, there's an issue with um, can He save us? Will He save us? Is He guaranteeing our salvation? And uh, if, What I see in Scripture with salvation is that the Father is giving a love gift to the Son, who is the bride, the church, and He guarantees the love gift. Um, and the Spirit goes and regenerates and draws those and he will save them to the end. Okay, so the biggest question is, I think I have, is does God choose those that will be saved, or is there some responsibility in man that chooses to be saved? There is a responsibility in man, but the man is not able to respond to God unless God does something to the man first. Uh, we see in First John that we love because he first loved us. There's a doctrine that we miss a lot of times, and it's regeneration. That God has to bring us back to life because we're dead in sin. 
<laughs> so so Zach <laughs> sounds like sounds like Zach needs to take a drink of water. Or Zach something. really did not enjoy saying that. <laughs> I thought he <laughs> I thought um, he was going to cry or something. I couldn't tell what was happening in front of me. We so we do have a responsibility. You're saying so, Travis. You said something just a minute ago that you believed it was planned out before the foundations of the earth, and it made me think of Ephesians chapter one. Uh, to be honest with you, so let's just read that real quick. Uh, it says. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in him being Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, if you read through that, you see that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, the Bible says, in the heavenly places. And then it says, even as he chose us in him, like you said earlier, before the foundations of the world, which means before this world was ever spoken into existence, apparently, according to this Bible verse, these scriptures, this was planned out. Salvation was planned out. Now, is this the way that salvation is to occur, or is this who will be saved? Uh, no, as Zach clears his throat. Yeah, I think I'm good now, sir. The uh, I, I think this is who will be saved. The, the issue that we have a lot of time with this is how does God fairly get to pick who will be saved? And it's not an issue with fair. It's an issue with... He's sovereign, and he does as he pleases, as we talked about a while ago. If you take a, a passage of Scripture like we're talking about with Ephesians, when it says that uh, before the foundation of the earth that he did this, the only other option with election that you get is that, well, one other option is that you look into the future, uh, that God looks into the future and sees who will be saved. Uh, that leads to open theism, which is where God looks and he reacts to what man does. So instead of God being the one who initiates salvation, you have God reacting to what the man does and then saving based on what he sees. Well, this takes away the omniscience of God, that, that God is all-knowing, that he, instead of going to save the person, now whatever the man does, the man is actually the one who elects instead of God. So we want to take the, we want to take the onus almost off of God in election and make it to where we've got to defend him somehow by saying, no, He's chosen everyone, so when he looks down, he just reacts to what he sees. But God does not react to what he sees because um, he is sovereign. So well, one of the things I've heard, and Travis, I'll let you share what you have. Um, one of the things I've heard and when you talk about election, when you talk about salvation, is that kind of one of two things is, one, he sovereignly chose those that would be saved before the foundation of the world. Number two, the other view is, Yes, God is all-knowing, but he looked down the tunnels of time to see who would choose him. And then, therefore, he elected them based off of this foreknowledge that he had as he looked down the tunnels of time from now, I guess, until Jesus comes back, of all of those who would be saved, and then he chose or predestined them according to that. Now, you talked about open theism, but isn't that something that God is learning? If he's all-knowing, is he not... That, that would that would to me say that God doesn't know all if he's got to look down some future tunnel to see who all would choose him and then elect them based off that. So therefore, if we believe in the omniscience of God, then that can't be the accurate way that salvation was planned before the foundations of the world. That is entirely accurate. Um, and there's another side to this too, and it's it's that prior to God working in our hearts and our lives, we're dead in sin. Uh, so I think for if I'm if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm objecting to what you're saying, right? Like I don't like this. I don't like that idea that I didn't choose God, that that He chose me. Um, if you're that person, I just I want to encourage you with something. It goes back to your doctrine on man. What what did sin do? What is our natural condition? Um, and Stephen read from Ephesians 1, if you go to Ephesians 2, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, he's talking past tense because we're talking to believers here. But we know from other passages like Romans 3, um, 
and many more that 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 is our natural state. We're dead. We are we are enslaved to sin from birth. And so the idea that we will one day just awaken from that death or that free ourselves from our own enslavement on our own and choose God is unbiblical. You can't make that case from Scripture. I don't believe. Um, and so, so, you're, so, so you're saying Lazarus didn't say, I think I'm going to wake up here in this tomb and walk out and choose Christ. I don't believe he did. I think the sovereign God called out Lazarus come forth, and he responded in the only logical way he could at the time, when a dead man is raised to life, and he fleed right to the Savior. Agreed. Yeah, but then you're going to get the argument that says, well, there's people who hear the gospel. There's a general call that a lot of people hear. So God's calling everybody to be saved when you hear the, the general call. But there's a difference in the general call and the effectual call. If Mary or Martha go to the tomb and they say, Lazarus, come forth, then you've got nothing. When Jesus gives the call to Lazarus, come forth, he also not only gives the call, he gives them the ability to respond to the call. Mm. And that's the truth. If you see Romans 3, it says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks God. Our throats are like an open tomb. And the idea is that this man who is dead in sin because of Adam, um, he will never respond to God. So if you take away election, then no one gets saved. That's a great point. Let's hang out right there just for a minute. So there's none that is good, no, not one. There is none that seek after God. There is none that is righteous. I mean, you read it, or you said it. Their throats are an open grave. So according to this, and this being the Word of God, the Bible, Romans chapter 3, then you're exactly right. Then there's no one that would ever call upon the name of the Lord because we are, we are at, at war with God, right? We are at war with Him before uh, we are ever converted. And you said it earlier that, the, that God has to do something in man for us to be able to respond to Him because we're running the opposite direction. At war with God, we hate God. And listen, people can make a case. There are good people, though, right? There are good people in the world, and I would say, okay, I agree. There are people that do good and moral things, but moralism is different than salvation, than, um, than Christianity, because people can do good things, but God still hates them, or they're still at war with God, and I know that language is pretty tough that God hates, but we, I think we can make a case, this is a different time, different place, but I think we can make a case from that, from Proverbs 6, Psalm 5, um, but if we are running from God with not a care about him, not we don't care about his church, we don't care about his word, we hate God spiritually, we're dead, we can never wake up on our own just like Lazarus Lazarus could not wake up on his own we can't we don't see we don't go to funerals I just attended a funeral recently and and, and the person laying there in that casket didn't wake up as bad as we would like for her, her to have woken up dead things can't do things on their own right that's right you know what's interesting to me as you talk about the story of Lazarus um that is in John 11. If you go back one chapter to John 10, and starting in uh, verse 25, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But get this, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So that's his sheep. That's his sheep. His sheep hear. Now, this is not, we're not talking about... Um, a shepherd that's already been with his sheep for years. This is sheep that are out in the world. They're going to hear his voice and know who he is, right? Right. That's that. That's that effectual call. Yeah. Uh, that Zach was talking about a while ago, or a while ago. Yeah, that's good. So <laughs> I'm still having trouble thinking through. We've said a lot of stuff, and we're kind of some of this stuff has gone on the deep end, but. What what would you guys say? Let's let's think through this in in practical terms here. Let's say that you have somebody come up to you, and we'll say that their tradition, they're a Southern Baptist to, at heart. Their tradition is, I mean, you don't drink, smoke, cuss, chew, or date girls that do, right? Kind of that old thing. And then you get to talking about salvation. And they say, well, I chose Jesus Christ to be my personal, personal Savior 10 years ago. Or, um, 
it's your choice whether or not you be saved. I was listening to a a very prominent pastor just a little while ago on YouTube, and he says that God loves all, he died for all, and wants all to be saved, and uh, he has not chosen a particular people that would be saved. So you have people, you have this guy, he's thinking in those terms, and he's, a, he's like, you know, the doctrine of election is, is heresy, that man has the choice of what they do with Christ on this side of eternity. They can choose whether they enter into the kingdom or if they're going to spend eternity in hell. It is their choice. So practically, how would you walk somebody like that through the scriptures to, to show them? And, and let me just say this, is not say, well, John MacArthur says, or Paul Washer says, or Steve Lawson says, but what does the Bible say? Where's your beginning point when somebody says that? That you choose Christ? Yeah, I mean, and a lot of times you're going to get John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him will not perish. And that's that's the number one thing that you're going to hear. Man makes a choice because it says whosoever, and it says all in all these places in Timothy and you can make those you can make those points, and I'll be honest. I'm, you know, looking at this through a lot of trying to see both ways. But you've got issues with those verses in comparison to the rest of the scripture. When you start comparing scripture and scripture, and knowing that there's no, um, there's not one that's not going to correlate with the other, then you've got some issues that you've you've got to go through. If somebody's saying, uh, what I don't know what's preacher you're talking about but he's either taking white out to the new testament or he's not reading the new testament at all because election and predestination are all over that thing and if you start taking out doctrine then you're you've got an attack going on god uh and there's an issue with that yeah and two i would point them to john chapter 15 uh right here in verse yeah chapter 15 verse 16 it says this is jesus talking you did not choose me but i chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So who who does the choosing here in this scripture? What do we see? Well, I think we see that God chooses, That's but right. why is it so hard for man to comprehend that? That's a multifaceted <laughs> uh, answer, I believe. Well, I think that the ultimate reason it's so hard for man to grasp that is that our human minds and our flesh really want to be in control of more than we're in control of if you think about it you want to well let me just think in my terms if i'm in the passenger side of a vehicle then i want to be in control of that vehicle and i'm not and i'm going to do everything i can to manipulate that driver zach probably took some of this from me in the back seat on the way to Atlanta not too long ago when I was trying to help him out with that map on the GPS and try to help him with his turns and everything because I'm not in control. I feel like I need to be, so I'm inserting myself in places I have no business. Zach didn't need my help to drive from the back seat. Uh, I like to be in control when I'm at a restaurant, right? I want my food the way I want it, when I want it, and how I want it, right? I know that sounds kind of... I mean, we're all like that. We all want our food the way we want it, right? So we want to be in control of things, and especially when it comes to these things, man wants to be in control of something that they can't be in control of, and that ends up being, it ends up causing division in the body, and it ends up causing, um, really it defames the name of Christ, and it shouldn't. Right, especially when we see these things in Scripture. So if you can say, all right, brother, so-and-so, can you show me in the Scripture where this free will choice is to be saved or not? Well, nine times out of ten, they're going to take you either back to Adam and Eve or they're going to just say John 3.16 or just start throwing out verses that they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just using it because that's what they've heard all their life. Right? So man wants to be in control and it's really hard to accept things when they're not. You you said something there. Um, you said they've heard all their lives. And I think that is a big contributing factor to our hostility um, t- 
toward these doctrines. I think that, that even as unbelievers, we learn things about God, whether they're true or not. Um, so our entire lives, especially, you know, all three of us from the Bible Belt. So growing up, I didn't grow up in church, but I heard a lot about God. And so what that does is it begins to shape in your mind a vision of who God is. And it's not rooted in Scripture, which is our source. That's our standard. Uh, this, the Bible is truth. And so what we do is instead of, instead of um, knowing who God is according to Scripture, we have this image of God in our minds who we think he should be. Right, and we want a God that's like us, or, or I guess some folks may, I don't know. But whenever you begin to hear these things from Scripture about God's sovereignty and who He truly is, and it flies in the face of everything you've believed, right, there is an instant, instant hostility to that. We don't like that. That's, I, I mean, have you, <laughs> I know I have, I've heard people say, well, I could never believe in a God like that when you're talking about the doctrines of grace or specifically election or things like that. Well, why is that? Well, it's because they've invented a God in their minds. It's not the God found in the Bible. And this is not to say that everyone who denies the doctrines of grace doesn't believe in the God of Scripture. Please don't mishear me. What would you say the doctrines of grace were for those that may be new to that term or those? The doctrines of grace is another uh, term for what we may call Calvinism. Um and basically, Calvinism has five main points. That it goes a lot deeper than that, but we use the acrostic tulip, um, T-U-L-I-P. And so the T stands for total depravity, and that's we've touched on that. That's our starting point. That's our inherent sinfulness. Um, all of who we are was um, affected by the fall. Which that doesn't mean that man is completely as wicked as they can be. Oh, no. Like I said earlier, there's, there's men and women that are moral. Mm-hmm. They do good worldly things but spiritually they have been affected by the fall as romans 5 teaches is sin and death spread to all men because one man sinned right so that is total depravity in a nutshell we have we're infected kind of like this and i don't mean to i'm going to let you keep going but kind of thinking about this coronavirus right (laughs) that's spreading i mean if you come in contact with somebody that's had that has the coronavirus you're probably going to get the coronavirus, and it, that's like a disease or a sickness. We can't help but be infected with sin because our forefather, our Adam, he sinned. The Bible's clear. Sin and death spread to all men. So every person born in this world is affected by that sin, which is total depravity. And I think there's another word that has been used before that doesn't that hasn't said total. Do, do any of you know what it is? Mm. Nope. I'll find it and uh, let you know. But keep going. Anyway, so yes, and Adam all die. That's that's total depravity. Uh, we are all sinners. Okay, well, the next one is the U, which stands for unconditional election, which is basically what we're talking about here. This is that God, before the foundations of the earth, chose those whom he would set his affections on, whom he would bring to salvation. Um, now, this... Well, I'm not going to go there yet. So the next one is the L, which stands for limited atonement. This is for whom Christ atoned for or whom he died for. So one view is that he died for all people, all time. The The limited atonement stance would say, no, God died, spe- or Jesus died on that cross specifically for God's elect. Um, the I is irresistible grace. This is the doctrine of regeneration, that who God uh, regenerates will inevitably come to him in faith and repentance. And then the P is the perseverance of the saints. Uh, you may have heard the old watered-down Baptisty version, once saved, always saved. We like perseverance of the saints, and this is that those whom God has saved, he will hold um, in salvation for all of eternity with him. Yeah, to hit on the last one, perseverance of the saints, I think that's, a, uh, I think that's an important one um, for a lot of folks because there are people who completely would agree with us in saying that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, who do not believe in what we call perseverance of the saints. And the reason they don't believe in that is because of the way salvation, in their minds, occurs anyway. So they believe that man freely walks into salvation, so man can freely leave salvation. Um, we, we don't see that in the Scripture. The, what we see in that is that man will persevere to the end because of what God has done in him. Um, or you could call it the preservation of the saints because those who Christ has saved, he will produce in them. John fifteen five. I'm the vine, you're the branches. A man remains in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you do nothing. 
and that is great news for us. And that's pretty much the five points in a in a nutshell. I'd say that's a pretty good job there, Travis, that you did. Um, one thing in that, a lot of times people will say, well, you guys don't believe that man has a will or that he makes a choice. I, I think we would all completely disagree that man absolutely makes a choice, but man will never choose Christ because man can't choose Christ. And man can't choose Christ because he won't choose Christ. And we see this all over the scripture. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone from his own way. Or Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the T that nobody goes there but God elects. And God dies for us. And God regenerates us. And he keeps us saved to the end. So one place uh, you could look in scripture just to see a quick snapshot of everything we're talking about pretty much here is Romans 8. In verse 29, that says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So from start to finish, it's all an act of God. That's right. And talking about total depravity, the word I was looking for is R.C. Sproul in his book, What is Reformed Theology, says... Perhaps a better term for the doctrine of total depravity would be radical corruption. So we have all been corrupted by the fall, and it is a radical corruption. So uh, the biggest thing is I, I think I think most and listen, some people push back against total depravity, and you're going to have to really argue the scriptures to to really push back enough to, and I don't know how you're going to overcome the fact that you're not radically corrupted by sin and the fall and then you have what you said is the you in the five points um, which is unconditional election which means there's nothing man can do to earn this salvation right Ephesians 2 8 9 for as by grace you've been saved through faith this is not of yourself not of any works uh, it is of God lest any man boast and I just paraphrase that but that's what it says so there's Nothing in man that they can do to earn salvation. So, majority would say, "Okay, I've been I've been infected by sin. I'm a product of the fall. I have been born with a sin nature. Okay, I'll give you the tea, right? And I'll give you the you. There's nothing in man that they can do to earn this salvation. What they won't do." A lot of people will not give you the L. They will fight you over the L, which is limited atonement, right? So brother so-and-so that's grown up in the Baptist church all of his life that says, I've chosen to be saved, um, he's not, he's not going to go down without a fight when it comes to the L and limited atonement. So what is that? What is the most practical way you can flesh out limited atonement? I know you did it, but why is that one so controversial in the five points? I think it really gets to the point of, well, does Jesus love everyone? I think that's an issue saying that, well, God loved the world. So Jesus loves, does he love every single person or does he love people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? That's a great question. I would say, does he, he love everyone? When you see in Timothy in the, in the all, um, or if you see that God's not willing that any should perish, or if you see any of these all or whosoever's, there are, it's not a reference to, Every single individual, it is a reference to um, what the Great Commission says, who were to preach the gospel to, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, because God has elected people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be part of his adopted family who he will regenerate and save. And that's the good news of salvation. If you, There's a different kind of love that God has for the church than he does for the rest of the world. If you see, I think it's Ephesians 5, um, it says, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. There's a different kind of love that happens there. If Jesus died for every single person, if he paid the penalty, if the, the wrath was poured out on him for every single person, what in the world is anybody doing in hell? That's a great point, Zach. Um, and this is all over Scripture, too. Um, we can look at Matthew 1, which is... Uh, reiterating Isaiah 7 that she will bear a son and he will save his people from their sins. Uh, look at John 10 where he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And on and on we could go. There are specifics. Um, in Isaiah 53, I believe it even says that 
Uh, basically, he died for God's people. There is a specific people that he came for. And logically, if you think it through, I think you just nailed it. You, you can't really believe that Jesus was in actual propitiation for our sins and for the sins of those who are in hell being punished right now for their sins. That doesn't make any sense. Um, if he's not their propitiation, then he's nobody's propitiation. And what he did was, I mean, basically he would need to die again. In saying that Jesus died for everybody on the cross, you're essentially saying that the cross saved nobody. Um, I would differ completely from that line. I would say that Jesus definitely died and saved somebody on the cross, and I believe that it is those that he elected before the foundation of the earth. Um, I do not think that Jesus went to the cross and there was a chance that no one could be saved. Uh, I think there's definitely a people that will be saved. There's always a remnant if you see in the Old Testament. People don't have an issue with election most of the time in the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament and people will start arguing election with you all over the place in a different meaning. Somebody needs to go back and apologize to all the people that died in Canaan who didn't get the gospel preached to them when God said go in and take them all out. You're right. I I think I've mentioned this before is not many people have an issue with the Israelites coming out of Egypt and going across that water on dry ground, right? Nobody has an issue with the Egyptians following but then being swallowed up, right? Yeah, how does Romans 8.28 work with that? Right. So anything you see in the Old Testament and you're spot on with this, in my opinion, is they're like, yeah, that's the Old Testament, though. This is the New Testament where Jesus is all love. He's caring. And it, it, it's it's what I call care bear theology. Now, I, I would say, yes, Jesus is loving. He's caring. He is uh, uh, an awesome Jesus, right? But he is still shedding his blood for somebody, right? And everybody whether you're on the side of the doctrine of election and the doctrines of grace, or if you're on the Arminian side, which is the free will, you can choose Christ, everybody limits the atonement in some way. You want to speak to that, Travis? Yeah, um, so when we talk about limited atonement, we would say uh, that it is limited in who it was for, right? So we would not we would limit it in terms that it was not for every single person that ever lived. It was only for God's elect. The other side limits the effect of the atonement. So they would say the atonement was for all people all time, but it it doesn't have the effect that we believe it has. That we believe the cross actually saved people. That God was that Jesus on the cross was that atonement. Uh, they believe he was that potential atonement. Right? There's that potential there, but you know, he's done ninety nine point nine percent of it, but that, that point one is up to man to respond. Uh, you got anything you want to say to that, Zach? Yeah, I would add to that. It, if you say that there is no election and that there is no particular redemption or limited atonement, then there's no way that you wind up with perseverance of the saints. There is no way that you wind up with when Jesus says it's finished or it's accomplished or paid in full on the cross. There's no way that you wind up in a secure salvation without Jesus specifically accomplishing what he says he accomplished um if you if you think about that and you take the view of election being that god looked into the tunnel of time and saw who it was whether you take god choosing before the foundation of the earth or the tunnel of time view you still get either way when jesus goes to the cross he knows who he's dying for so i mean i I don't see the issue with that either way but a lot of people think um it's it's a heresy to say that jesus did not die for everyone how can that be I was in a conversation one time with someone that was really struggling with the doctrine of election, predestination, and and listen, anytime somebody does, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll flesh this out here in a few minutes as we begin to wind down here, I'll ask another question about how we respond to somebody that doesn't believe the way that you and I may believe, but we'll get there. But this person was desperately seeking and hoping to understand the position I take and um, and listen let's be clear this is not a hyper Calvinism we can talk about that before we end just so we can draw the lines but uh, just a biblical con- 
uh, conviction that I have where I stand on these issues and this person was on the other end of it and they were searching and they began to share with me and said, well, um, I was thought I was saved and then I, I thought I had given my life to Christ and then things just started breaking down in my life and I was a, I was a parent at home uh, and taking care of the kids and all of a sudden I sat down on my couch and I thought, I don't have to do this alone. And right there on the couch, this person gave their life to Christ. Right? That's a great story. And this person said, they chose that night to sit down on that couch and make Jesus the Lord of their life. And I pushed back a little bit, lovingly and caringly and gingerly. But I said, do you believe that God is sovereign and complete control of all things? Well, yeah. I said, okay, here's God up here. Here's you down here. We're going about our lives. God's going about his ruling and reigning. And then all of a sudden, here comes this day where you sit down on your couch and you have a decision to make. I'm either going to give my life to Christ or I'm not. Right? So at this very moment when you're deciding what to do with your salvation, but on the same side, you say God is in control of all things. In this very moment, you have now flipped the position. You are now seated above God because you are fixing to make a, a decision that you can make, that God has no business making for you, that God can't make for you. So you've just flipped this position where now you're the sovereign one in this situation. I said, do you see that? And this person said, well, yeah, I do see that, actually. And I'm like, here it is. We're making, some, we're, we're making some headway here. And I said, do you see that if God is in control of all things and sovereign over all things, he's sovereign over salvation as well? He's in control of salvation as well, yours, mine, everybody's that will be saved. And if you think that you're making that choice, you're just sitting yourself up on the throne and you're putting God on the couch essentially. And then I thought we were making some headway and said, but I still chose. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I started pushing back. What made you even sit down on that couch in the first place? She said, what do you mean? I said, what caused you to sit down, realize your life is chaotic and you don't have to do it alone, that Christ has died for you. What made you sit down and just start thinking through that and then give your life to Christ? And she said, the Holy Spirit, I guess. And I said, exactly. Exactly. The Holy Spirit was calling you. The Holy Spirit was drawing you to God. The Holy Spirit was drawing you unto salvation, regenerating you, and that simply means being born again. The Holy Spirit drew you, which means that God chose you from the beginning of time for this very moment that the Spirit would draw you unto himself. And it's in that moment you responded to what God has already done. And man, it was almost like, I was like, this, she sees it from Scripture now. The Lord has revealed it to her. I've been saying this person up until now, but it was a lady apparently because I'm saying her. Um, and if this person ever hears this, I love this person dearly still to this day, by the way. Um, but then it's still, well, I chose, I, I chose, and I can't understand how you think that God chose it for me, and I get it, right? This is a hard doctrine to deal with. God's sovereignty in the middle of salvation and in control, this is hard, but if we get down into our testimonies, those that have legit testimonies, now I'm not talking about like Walked the aisle, repeated a prayer, nothing ever changed in my life. I raised my hand at Bible school, got baptized. If there's no affections for Jesus, no affections for the bride, which is the church, if there's no affections to want to read the scriptures, if there's no desire to live a godly life, then that salvation isn't real. But for those that are truly saved, if we get down into the very nuts and bolts of how this all panned out, then I think we'd see that they had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it, it goes back to our nature. It goes back to the total depravity, and people don't understand this. Did this person make a choice? Absolutely. This person made a lot of choices up to that point, though, 
and they made choices appointing according to their nature. Right? And we've talked about this. Before Christ, we're slaves to sin. We are dead in sin. And so it's kind of like if you were to take a, a hungry dog and throw him in a room and you put a ribeye steak in one corner and you put a pile of carrots in the other corner, does that dog have a choice of which food he's going to eat? Absolutely. What's he going to eat 10 out of 10 times? He's going to eat the steak. That's his nature, right? And so it is with us. Sure, we have a choice, but we're dead in sin. We're going to choose what is opposed to God every time. And that's where regeneration comes in. Because when God gives us the new birth, he makes us a new creation. Now our affections change. Now we don't hate the things uh, that God loves and vice versa. No, now we we run to Christ. So yes, we choose Christ, but we choose Christ because he has worked in us now. Um, faith and repentance both are from God. These are not things we muster up ourselves. We see that in Ephesians 2 and 2 Timothy 2. So you, we've hashed out that God has to draw people to be saved. And then that leads to the question, does he draw everyone? Well, everyone's not elected. Everyone's not... Yes, they are. Okay. You're going to get a lot of folks that will say yes. Maybe they're not elected, but... The God goes, and that call goes out to everybody. All right, let's let's walk through Second Peter three nine. Let's walk through Second Peter three nine. God is not willing that any should perish. Yeah, is that the one? But all and that all should come to repentance. repentance. Uh, we got to look at who the all are, um, and we got to look at who the any are. Travis, you getting there? I'd like to read a little bit of what comes before that. Here you go. I got it right here. All right. Let's Don't get anything on my Bible. <laughs> yes, sir. Point number one in um, Scripture study context. We'll start in verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Now, who is he talking to, first of all? He's talking to the church. Where is the promise of his coming? Who's the, who, who is his? That's Jesus. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist and are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There will be destruction of ungodly. Take note there. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and it goes on. I would say in this passage that God is not slow counting his promise, what, that he's coming back, but is patient toward you, who is the you, that would be the church, not wishing that any should perish. When I read this, my understanding is that there's people who are coming in and telling the church, look, if he doesn't come back and get you by the time he dies, then you missed the point here. And what he's saying is, he's not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So those who are elected and those who are justified, they're being sanctified and they will be glorified. They will continue until they reach repentance at the final day. They will continue to be saved. So the promise is not that. God's not wishing that anybody goes to hell. If that was the promise, then why would God send anybody to hell? The promise is, those of you who are being saved, you will reach glorification at the end, whether he comes back before you die or not. That's good, Zach. But talking about hell, how could a, how could a loving, just God send anybody to hell? That's not fair. It's, what, not. It's, not, it's not fair for him to elect some and not others, and then they go to hell on the basis of just who God is up there just with his magnifying glass with the sun just burning people that otherwise could have had a choice or a chance. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> again, again, no one on their own initiative is going to choose God ever. Uh, we're dead in sin. But here's the thing. God has elected those to show his grace and mercy to. Uh, now, the thing about grace and mercy are that we don't deserve either of those things. If we wanted fair, every single person who's ever lived would go to hell. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Mm-hmm. That's fair because all we like sheep have gone astray. All we're, have sinned. We're all sinners, right? James 2.10 says if you've broken one law, you're guilty of breaking them all. Um, we've all broken at least one, right? So the thing is we're all guilty. So God didn't have to choose or elect us to hell. We're going to do that ourselves. Um, God has elected those whom he will save. Hell is our default position. That's what we've bought with our sin. The wages of sin is death. Romans 9 teaches that he's going to show mercy to whom he shows mercy. And that's something that we have to wrap our minds around and wrestle with is, is what is that? What's God really saying here? And if he's Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. How could he hate somebody from the womb? And then somebody says, well, those are the nations. Right, and, well, he hates a lot more people then if that's the nations. And a lot more people have gone to hell in that scenario. Yeah, in Romans 9 you also get, it's not of man who wills, but it's of God who calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we see John six forty four, uh, Jesus says, No man come to me, lest the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So whoever is drawn is raised up on the last day. You see the same thing with Romans eight twenty. Uh, 9 and 30, that those whom he foreknew he predestined, those whom he predestined he called. Whoever he calls is justified. Whoever he justifies is glorified. There's a progression that it makes sense to me to think, if even if you want to think down the tulip, but you can call it Calvinism or you can call it Bible or you can call it pushback or whatever you want to call it. But it Spurgeon makes, says that Calvinism is biblical Christianity or Reformed theology is biblical Christianity. Thank you, Chuck. But it makes sense to me and I see it in the scriptures everywhere that there is a particular people who are elected. There is a particular people who are died for, purchased, and bought. There are a particular people that God calls and regenerates and a particular people that are saved until the end. So, uh, go ahead, Stephen. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just looking here in Romans 9, and no no commentary, no uh, nothing but the scripture itself when it starts talking about children of the promise that these children of the promise are not promise of the flesh, but of the spirit. And these numerous stars, as God told Abraham, that you would be the father of so many sons and daughters, as numerous as the the stars in the sky, right? These are spiritual people that will be saved, that become part of that promise that you see in Romans 9. And we have to understand from our biblical view and interpretation that those people that he said would be saved and he'd be the father of, the number of the stars, each had a name. You know, each star has a name. But if he's using this analogy, I think all the names that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life were already there when he told Abraham, hey, you're going to be, you're going to have children of the promise. And it's not because they're born of Israel. It's because they're born into uh, new life. Right. So, so that makes me think uh, to some of our listeners that may not uh, believe in our line of theology. Right. One of the number one things that I hear when talking to people uh, in objection is, "Well, if God has chosen, who's going to be saved? Why should we evangelize?" Mm. Any, either of you want to speak to that? Ooh, pick me, I'll go. This is for our listeners. This is where we're starting to get into why people hate and deny Calvinism and say it's wrong, heretical. And others, this is what we would call hyper-Calvinism that we're kind of getting into now, is when people hear Calvinism, they automatically assume that there's no need to evangelize, and that's what Calvinists do, is they just don't evangelize. They don't have to, because God has already chosen those whom will be saved, so no need to evangelize, right, Zach? No one is getting saved without the preaching of the gospel, Romans ten seventeen. That's Faith right. comes by hearing... And hearing the word of God. That's how about right. how about Romans one sixteen? So hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Or not. Hold on. So if faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the word of God, so you're telling me that that age old saying of preach the gospel and if necessary use words, you're telling me that's not legit according to what you just said. Yes. Do I have to expound on that, really? 
I mean, that's a lot of people say that and think that, that you don't even have to preach the gospel by using words, just by the way you live your life. Yeah, I would completely disagree with that. Why? Great Commission. And? The scripture you just said. Yeah, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Okay, seeing somebody that's saved. Mm, no, hearing the word of God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Right. To everyone who believes. So there's been power that's gone out from the preaching of the gospel. To who? What if it's whosoever believes? I, I don't have any issue with that. I don't either. Whosoever believes. Amen. Let whosoever will come. The only problem is ain't nobody coming unless God has enabled them to come. Right. But then you get the question, well, why so many, why preach the gospel to all these people if they don't even have the ability to say yes? Because God said to. That's right. Well, in your gospel presentation, you can't say that Jesus died for everybody. What scripture tells me to go out and say, Jesus died for you? No, you preach the gospel, call them to repentance. Jesus said, repent and believe. That is what we're to preach, repentance and believe. So so if you're a, and I don't, listen, I don't even like saying this word, but if you're a quote-unquote Calvinist, and I don't like that word, and, and really, or if you could say, so if you hold to the doctrines of grace, I prefer, so if you believe the Bible, should you evangelize? And the answer is, without a, beyond a shadow of a doubt, yes. What makes evangelism easier? If there is a promise from God that I'm to go out and preach the gospel, and he is going to save those he intended to save, or, Zach, you go preach the gospel, and then you try to win them with your words, and then it's on you and the man to conjure up the salvation. That is so much pressure, and I grew up thinking that I had to be the one to save them. Like, I had to say the right things, do the right things, and then I would say, well, because I may get stumped, I may not have the right words, I'm just not going to evangelize. So that way of thinking could damage more than hyper-Calvinism sometimes, which we would reject completely, this hyper-Calvinistic view. But... Even wherever you fall in, in your theology, but even as we are here now believing the doctrines of grace or the Bible, we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing comes from the Word of God. The Great Commission says, go therefore and make disciples. So we have to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Travis, about God's providence, is he has already provided the means to which those that will be saved. In other words, he already in his providence knows that when Zach talks to so-and-so, He's either going to be doing one of a few things. He's going to be watering that seed that's already been planted. That seed's going to keep growing. And, and ultimately, it could be Zach talks to him again about the gospel, and God saves him. But that's a result of us being obedient to the Scripture and preaching and proclaiming the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know that's how people are saved. God does all the things that he does in heaven, and we are supposed to do all the things that he has told us to do here. And we find ourselves arguing too much about theology rather than being about God's business and going out and doing what he's told us to do, unfortunately. Yeah, and and I think that really people that hold to our view should be some of the most evangelistic people out there because we have such a comfort knowing that the pressure's not on us. We don't have to perform. We have to present. That's it, and God will do the work. Uh, But really, this whole discussion in its entirety... um, it just enables me to, to rest in God uh, in a way that I couldn't before, I don't think. Because it, whether you admit it or not, the the opposing view, there is this, even if it's small, there's a little bit of I did something, right? I prayed that prayer. Some people, I got baptized, whatever it is. Well, under this, it's it has nothing to do with what I did, what I'll do, what I could do. It's what God has done. That's uh, right. And we're able to rest in that. Right. Yeah, when I preach the gospel, I've got a whole lot more confidence that God can save this person than this person's going to decide to come do something on his own. Um, One thing I want to mention for our listeners that may be um, traditional Southern Baptists, and I know we, we hang on to the once saved, always saved, or what we call perseverance of the saints. Without this view of election that God chose before the foundation of the earth, you do not get once saved, always saved, or eternal security, or perseverance of the saints. You never get it. Therefore, you can never have assurance um, because in that free will you walked into it, it's almost as if it depends on the man and the explaining. I know that you wouldn't explain, your thoughts would not be that salvation depends upon man. You would say it depends upon God, but the only way you can explain it is that is that man made that decision, then it's up to man to keep it. So election 
and this atonement is the guarantee for eternal uh, eternal security and assurance. I heard a guy say very recently that um, he he believes that God does not always get what he wants. And I thought, how on earth can you sleep at night believing that you are saved or that God will keep you saved? If God doesn't get what he wants, you have no assurance of that at all. You could be in and out. That's right. So as we begin to wind down this episode, is there, first of all, is there, before we start to transition into ending our time together about this topic, is there any closing remarks you'd want to say about uh, God's uh, sovereignty and salvation? Yeah, as far as election goes, the last thing that I would like to say is it matters to us, and we get worked up about it. And we, I've been on the side that wants to argue, well, that there's the same kind of love that God has for every person that he died for them. It, it doesn't matter to the lost person. There's still the human responsibility on the issue and that goes with God's sovereignty. And the truth is, if they're not saved, they still hate his guts. Um, and that is, I know that's hard to swallow and that's hard to grasp, but they love sin. Now, the reason we love God is because he loved us, but there's still a love for sin. So uh, just please let the scripture speak for yourself. I've been there with you. God bless. Uh, I guess the last thing I have to say is that I remember first hearing about these doctrines, what they were, and I was opposed. Um, I didn't like Same. them. Yep. And so for me, it was a it was a pretty long process of coming to not only accept but actually love and embrace these doctrines. But one of the one of the key steps I think toward me really grasping and and I alluded to this earlier about how in our default position we don't know who God is. I read the holiness <clears throat> the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul and that began to just completely change the way that I viewed God, who he is and who I am. Um and I think when you begin to understand that from a biblical perspective, the rest of it just kind of falls in place. Um so if you've never read that book, I would do that, but um like Zach said, just search the scriptures. Um it's there. That's right. So here's, I know Zach did a little sign off there when he said God bless, but uh, he's going to have the opportunity to talk one more time, I guess, if he wants to. Uh, we got uh, one more thing that I want to talk about before we end our time together. And are people that hold to the doctrines of grace, are they wrong? Are they heretical? Are they ignorant? Are they, should they be shunned? Uh, should they be kicked out of the church? Should they be kicked out of the city? Should they be sent to prison for the rest of their lives? Somebody help me out. No, they're right. Oh, okay. All right, so what about somebody that holds to free will theology, Arminianism? Should they be kicked out of the church? Are they wrong? Are they heretical? Are they... Um, uh, I guess what I'm saying is they may we may think they may be wrong. They think we're wrong. But can we still fellowship with someone that holds differing theological convictions? I believe so. I believe the dividing line is, does this person think that salvation, would they affirm that salvation depends on man plus God, or they affirm that salvation depends on God alone? So that right there opens up a whole other Galatians talk, as if it's man plus God, if that's the gospel they're teaching and believing, then man plus God is a works-based or works-based gospel, which Paul says, let that be anathematized or let that let them be accursed for teaching uh, a false gospel, which anything other than God alone, Christ alone, right? If you start throwing in some sort of work, you're adding to the gospel. And according to Paul, that should be accursed. So we're walking a fine line in the theology there. Yeah, a lot of us would say, if you look at Catholicism and the sacraments and the works-based system, we would say that's a different gospel. And then there would be some who would say, if you look at baptism and the necessity of baptism to receive the Spirit to be saved, then that required man to do something first. That's a works-based system. And there are going to be many who are going to argue that in this free will, say a Southern Baptist tradition, decisional regeneration, when I choose on my own to accept God, there are going to be some who are going to say that is a works-based system. Now, I'm not drawing the lines. Somebody else can draw the lines. I've prayed about it and thought about it. Um, that hits me deep. i got family that's right in the middle of that. But also, 
we got to remember, I don't think we have everything 100% figured out that we understand things as God does. So there's got to be some grace in some of our theology too. But where is the dividing line? I don't know, ask James White. Absolutely. we Grace, we have to show grace to our brothers that and sisters that wouldn't hold to our theology. I think what we have to know is that Jesus shed his blood, died the death that we deserved, and those that repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ are saved. I think if somebody thinks that they chose to be saved, or if we believe that God chose us to be saved, I think we can still fellowship even in the same congregation. I like what John MacArthur has said, and I know we haven't used a lot of names, but uh, I'd rather use the Bible than other people, but John MacArthur says you don't have to believe the way we believe to come to church here or to be a member here. The only requirement is will heaven let you in? Are you a truly saved, baptized believer in Christ? Yeah, um, I'm just thinking back to uh, several months ago. I I remember one of our brother's church members, uh, Nathan Hargrave, he made the comment about how none of us have fully arrived yet, right? None of us have it all figured out. And so we just got to remember that. Uh, I know for me personally, you know, I, I believe things theologically that I didn't last year. And the year before that, and so as I'm in the Word and God reveals truth to me personally, you know, it shapes my my beliefs and my theology. I think that's true for everybody. Uh, Nobody is identical um, as far as their sanctification, where they are in the Lord, where they are in their understanding, and so we just got to remember that uh, and be charitable to each other. That's both sides. And two, we, more so than any people, should be humble because we believe we did absolutely nothing to earn our right standing with God. Absolutely. Yeah, people people ask sometimes, you know, what makes you so special that God chose you? And my response is, what makes you smarter than somebody else that you were wise enough to choose God? And he wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a fair response. So what makes you so special that God would choose you? Absolutely nothing because we believe the you unconditional. Right? unconditional election there's nothing good in us there's nothing that would warrant a holy and perfect god to want to look at us and at our majesty and our beauty and say i want that one it's so look what he's gonna do for me look what he's done i know what he's gonna do no it's in his grace his glory and who he is and i think before we end i think the biggest issue in in the hearts of men and women is it's hard to wrap our minds around these doctrines because we don't know who God is. We don't know his attributes. We don't know the Bible well enough sometimes in different areas. Uh, Now, I know folks that I believe will be going to heaven that differ with me on these topics, and that's fine, right? But I think for the most part, many people want to argue the theology, but they're not truly studying the word. They don't know who God is. They don't know Psalm 115.3 that says our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That is a sovereign ruler and reigner of this universe. So I think we can be charitable with one another from our side and their side. And if they're saved by grace through faith, then we can fellowship. We can fellowship in the same church. We can love each other. We don't have to be nasty. We don't have to be argumentative. We don't have to always be in a debate. We can lovingly agree to disagree. And uh, as long as you can point back to Scripture and have uh, Scripture interpreting Scripture because that's what it takes, then we can fellowship. And we shouldn't be hostile to one another, but we should glory in the Lord together, give Him glory, worship Him, and care about the bride and care about what God has called us to. So uh, with that being said, I think what I want to do, folks, is uh, Travis and and Zach, you can help me out here. I think I want to give away a couple books and those two books are two that we've mentioned tonight. Number one, I want to give away The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And number two, I want to give away What is Reformed Theology by R.C. Sproul. So to do that, how, how should they win? Should they comment on somehow or should they send an email in? Uh, how do you think they should go about winning these books? Should we give one book away to somebody, one book away to the other, or should we give both books to the same person? Rock, paper, scissor, best out of three. <laughs> I don't know. I think you should send in your best question against Reformed theology, whichever one Stephen determines is the best. 
He can give you one. Flesh that out a little bit. What do you mean? What's the best uh, argument against it, or what's the best? Yeah, what's the best scripture against it? I mean, who's gonna? What scripture are you seeing that says, "Man, these guys are dead wrong"? Send that to us. What if everybody listening holds our position? <laughs> All right, well then y'all be funny because you know what the big three are, and you can send them in, and then you get a hat trick bonus. Let's be real. Probably nobody's sending in anything. Maybe they will. Do you think somebody's yeah. listened to an hour and a half of this? Not an hour and a half. I'm sorry. Hour and five minutes of this. If, if no one sends anything in, I'll take them. I'll take the free books. You've got both of them. Uh, you can't have too many books. It's That's fact. true. Here, I'll do better than this. Folks, he's not giving away anything. If you've got Amazon Prime, then what is Reformed Theology? The whole first season is on there. Free. <laughs> the Go whole ahead. first season. <laughs> no, we'll give them away. I tell you what. Comment. Send us an email. Podcast at gmail.com. Send us an email, tell us where you live, tell us what you thought about the podcast, and say you want the free books. Yes, email us and tell us either your favorite or least favorite thing about this episode and expound on that. Let us know either in favor or opposed to anything we've said. So now they have to do like 12 different things. That's okay. All right, so here's... I'm interested to see the responses. Doctrine Matters Podcast at gmail.com. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and if you're in favor or against Reformed Theology, and then maybe give a brief description as to why. And then we will, if we get more than one, we will put those names in a hat. We'll draw. And, We're just uh, trying to make it as hard as we can because we don't really have any of these books. <laughs> we got one right here in front of me. I actually think I have two copies of The Holiness of God, but I'm going to buy brand new copies to send to the winner. So here's what you do. You email us you singing the doxology, and whoever sings no, it, the, no, 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 that's a joke. All right, email us. If you just email us and say, hey, I listened, <laughs> then your name goes in the drawing. <laughs> oh, hey, Armenians, we love you. Calvinists, we love you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about giving God glory, doing the work that he's called us to do. So we can link arms and do it together for God's glory and for the sake of the gospel. So email us. Let us know. Get in that free book drawing giveaway. And uh, we look forward to talking to you next time on the next episode of the Doctrine Matters podcast. Zach Davis, thank you for your time. God bless. There it is. Travis Drum, Elder Extraordinaire, thank you for your time. Bishop T.D. Drum. Bishop T.D. Drum. Soli Dale Gloria. Okay. Well, this is Pastor Stephen. Until next time, God bless.